has given his church the Great Commission as his plan to see disciples made among all the peoples of the earth. However, there are currently around 3.2 billion people today who don't have access to the gospel. Tragically, unless something changes, they will live, die, and go to hell without ever hearing about how they can be reconciled to God. In this message recently given at the Together for the Gospel Conference, David Platt, through the lens of Scripture, urges us to consider how we might work for the spread of the gospel to the hardest to reach people and places. Rather than focusing inward and dividing over less important issues, we need to be united in our mission around the gospel for the glory of God and for the sake of those who have never heard. This is the Radical with David Platt podcast. Here is David with a message titled, Coming Together for the Sake of Those Without the Gospel. If you have a Bible, and I hope you or somebody around you does that you can look on with, let me invite you to open with me to Psalm chapter 67. That's where we'll start in Psalm 67. When Mark invited me to be a part of this last conference, and I was asking him for any particular direction that would be helpful in discerning my talk topic. He said, think of this as your last word. Which like suddenly took this whole conference to another level for me. As in, you may not have another word after this. So make it count. So I, I don't know if I'm going to die today and not have any more words. I know that's possible. And knowing we have celebrated the gospel of Christ crucified and the wonder of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, I actually think this talk is what I would say if this was my last word. And I should also say, just before you all, I thank God for his grace and Mark and Lig and Al and CJ inviting me to stand on this stage that I clearly don't deserve to stand on. And specifically to Mark and Lig in the room today, thank you brothers for the invitation, not just to a conference, but to a friendship that has affected my life in ways far beyond what you brothers could know this side of heaven. So my title is Come Together for the Sake of Those Without the Gospel. I've got a lot to cover and a little bit of time, so I'm going to put all of this on the screen up here. So if you're taking notes, here's an outline of where we're going. Five texts, four truths, three problems, two conclusions, and one plea. Don't try to count out the number of points that is. Just, just go with it. Five texts, four truths, three problems, two conclusions, and one plea. So we'll dive right in, starting with the texts. And I'm just going to read them all in succession from the start. Starting in Psalm 67, then we'll move on. I'll have them on the screen, too, if you'd like to just follow along that way, or if you are able to turn fast enough to to go that way. I trust these texts, many or most are familiar to to you, but they will form the foundation for everything else that follows. The first is Psalm 67. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us, that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity 
and guide the nations upon earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. From there, we go to Jesus' final words to his disciples in Matthew chapter 28, verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Then to Jesus' final prayer before he went to the cross in John 17, starting in verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Now two more. Next to Paul, at the end of his letter to the church at Rome, some of his final words in that letter, Romans 15, verse 18. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain, and to be helped on my journey there by you, once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. And then our last text takes us to the final book of the Bible, as John envisions eternity future in Revelation 7, verses 9 and 10. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So let's pray. Oh God, please help me to clearly communicate and us to humbly receive truths from your word in order that we might live and lead your church according to these truths 
in this time and place that you have sovereignly ordained for us to serve you. In Jesus' name, amen. So these five texts, along with many other places in Scripture, collectively lead us to these four truths. Number one, the ultimate goal of God is His glory enjoyed and exalted among all nations. The ultimate goal of God. This is what God is about. God is about His glory being enjoyed and exalted among all the nations. And we could go from cover to cover in Scripture seeing this truth, but just think about our, our first and last text, Psalm 67, let the peoples praise you, O God, let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. Who wrote that? God did. The Psalms are such a fascinating book in the Bible, aren't they? And my wife and I celebrated our wedding anniversary not long ago. Let me tell you what I did not give to her on our wedding anniversary. I did not say, babe, I have written 150 songs that speak about how great I am and all of my wonderful attributes. And I want to give these, they're like poems, to you as a gift so that you can say them back to me. <laughs> Maybe even put them to music and sing them to me. And it will bring such joy to your soul. You're welcome. <laughs> I'm not about to give my wife that gift, but this is the gift God has given us. Why? Because our joy and our gladness are found in God's greatest praise. So let us be clear, John Piper did not come up with this idea. God had this idea billions of years before John Piper was born. God wants His glory to be enjoyed and exalted among all the peoples, all of them, all the nations, which is why all of history is headed toward the day, Revelation chapter 7, when a multitude we can't even imagine, can't even number from every nation, all tribes, all peoples, all languages will sing this song of praise and give God glory. Why is history headed toward this day? Because that's where God wants all of history to head, toward the enjoyment and exaltation of His glory among all the nations. And let's be clear, when we see the word nations in these text. It's not talking about nations like we might think of geopolitical entities or countries today, which did not exist in the same way in Psalm 67 or Revelation 7 or Matthew 28 for that matter, when Jesus says to make disciples of all nations. I trust we know he's using the term there, ethne, from which we get ethnic groups. 
You look back in Psalm 67, there are actually three different Hebrew words for nations and peoples. It's why Revelation 7 talks about nations, tribes, peoples, languages. So the picture we have in Scripture is all the ethnic groups of the world, all the tribes and peoples and languages, what we commonly call people groups today, which biblical anthropological scholars estimate there are at least 11,000 distinct ethnic groups. Some say over 16,000 distinct people groups in the world. And the ultimate goal of God is his glory enjoyed and exalted by every single one of them. That's the first truth. And it leads right into the second truth. The ultimate goal of every Christian and every church is to enjoy and exalt God's glory among all nations. So if the ultimate goal of God is for his glory to be enjoyed and exalted among all nations, and we are the people of God, and we are among the nations, then this is our ultimate goal. Your goal, my goal in life is to enjoy the glory of God. And that is the greatest news in the world. Sign me up. God, the most beautiful, magnificent, awesome, supreme, satisfying being in all the earth has created me to enjoy him? Yes. It's your, in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures and forevermore. I want to live there. Don't you want to live there? Don't you want to experience this purpose? Why would you want to live anywhere else? One thing I've asked of the Lord, one thing I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life and gaze upon his beauty. I love looking at my wife in all her beauty. I love looking at her, yet she is nowhere near as beautiful as God. Life is found in gazing on God and seeking God. Psalm 63, like earnestly, you're my God, I seek you day and night. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. I've seen you in this sanctuary. I've beheld your power, your glory. Your love is better than life. My lips will glorify you. I'll praise you as long as I live. I'll lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with the richest of foods. There is no one and nothing like God. And the goal of my life and the goal of your life, the goal of the church is to enjoy him in all of his glory and to exalt him in all of his glory among all of the nations. God is not just for you and me to enjoy. God is for all the peoples to enjoy. And we live for this goal. So I ask you, is this the goal of your life? And is this the goal of your church? If I were to ask you, you wake up this morning, what are you living for? What is your church living for? Would your answer be, would the answer of your church members be, we want more than anything else to enjoy and exalt the glory of God among all the nations. This is our life. Individually, it's our life together. It's our goal. Because this is God's goal, 
And if it's not your goal, well then whose goal needs to change? The train of history is headed toward the enjoyment and exaltation of God's glory among all the nations. So if you want your life to count in this world, you jump on that train. I've shared in many settings a significant moment in my story when I was in seminary. I started seeing this in scripture from cover to cover. And I started learning about nations and people groups and need of the gospel. And I started thinking, well, if this is the purpose of my life, to enjoy and exalt God's glory in all the nations, and there are nations where the gospel hasn't gone and God's glory is not known and enjoyed, then I need to become a missionary to another nation. And Heather and I started praying through that for our future. And one day the president of an international missions organization, the IMB, came to our seminary campus, Jerry Rankin, and I was asked to take him to breakfast. And I thought, well, this is my chance. I talked with Heather the night before. I said, here's who I'm taking to breakfast. I said, I think I'm gonna tell them we're ready to move to another nation. Is that okay with you? And she said, yes, that's okay with me. So we prayed, prayed together the next morning. I go off to breakfast with great anticipation. I sit down for breakfast with Dr. Rankin. I start pouring out my heart. I said, Dr. Rankin, I see this in God's word, purpose of my life, purpose of God. I see the needs among the nations. My wife and I are ready to go. And he looked back at me for about 60 seconds and encouraged me in what I had just said to him. And in the rest of breakfast, he talked to me about the need for pastors to shepherd churches where the gospel has gone for the spread of the gospel where it hasn't gone. And I was so confused. I went home that day, Heather was all excited. She said, how did it go? I said, I think the president of this missions organization just talked me out of becoming a missionary. <laughs> and my precious wife's face just dropped. Like I had disappointed her, like I'd blown the interview or something, <laughs> ruined our chances of fulfilling the purpose of our lives. But looking back, I'm so thankful for that breakfast conversation that day because Dr. Rankin put a category in my mind that was not there before. And looking back now, I don't know why it wasn't there. Actually, I, I know there's reasons why it wasn't there. But here was the category. Apparently, there is a type of person who is zealous to spread the glory of God among all the nations. Like zealous for that, but who doesn't become a missionary. And the more I thought about it, the more I thought, well, of course there's a category for someone who's passionate about spreading the glory of God among all the nations, but doesn't become a missionary. It's called a Christian. Right? Are missionaries the only people who are zealous for the glory of God among all the nations? Where did we get that in God's holy word? This is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, a member of his church. The Holy Spirit of God wants the nations for the glory of God. Do you have the Holy Spirit of God inside of you? Then you want, you are zealous for the glory of God among all the nations. This drives you. God help us. We have relegated your ultimate goal in the world to an optional program in the church. 
It is functional heresy, practical belief that goes contrary to biblical doctrine, and it is rampant across all of our churches. Spreading God's glory among all the peoples is not a program for a few Christians in the church. Spreading God's glory among all the peoples is the purpose for which every Christian has breath. The ultimate purpose, goal of every Christian in every church is to enjoy and exalt God's glory among all the nations. Which leads to truth number three. God's plan for the accomplishment of this goal is the Great Commission. So this is the plan Jesus outlines for the spread of God's glory among the nations. The proclamation of the gospel, the formation of disciples, and the multiplication of the church. Just think about how this plan played out in the New Testament. So picture, we remember, we won't turn there, but remember Acts 13, the church at Antioch, worshiping, fasting, and praying. And the Holy Spirit says, set apart Paul and Barnabas to go where? Where the gospel had not yet gone, to more people in more places. So they went out, these kind of pink arrows represent them going out, just down to Cyprus here. And what did they do when they got there? They proclaimed the gospel, they made disciples, and they gathered them together as a church. And they moved north up into Pisidian Antioch, down into Iconium, Lystra, Derby, and all of these places. What are they doing? They're proclaiming the gospel. They're making disciples. They're planting the church. They're doing what Jesus said to do. And in this way, more people in more places are enjoying and exalting the glory of God. God's plan for the accomplishment of this goal is the Great Commission, which leads to the fourth and final truth that I'm convinced most Christians and pastors are completely missing. Truth number four. The Great Commission is not a general command to make disciples among as many people as possible. The Great Commission is a specific command to make disciples among all the nations. In Matthew 28, Jesus did not say, go and make a lot of disciples. Jesus said, go and make disciples, pantata ethne, of all the nations, ethnic groups, people groups. And we know this was specific because Revelation 7 makes clear that disciples will one day have been made from every nation, every tribe, every people, and every language group. And because of the way the Spirit of God directed the people of God, the church in the New Testament. So come back to that map that we looked at just a moment ago, where we see this happening. The kind of purple arrows are them traveling back. And you remember they come back at the end of Acts 14 to Antioch and they encourage the church there. And then they set out on another journey. Well, I say they, a uh, little conflict. Now we have two missionary teams. And uh, Paul's team sets out from Antioch and goes north with Silas. And they pick up Timothy along the way. And you'll notice they're going in some of the same places they had been, strengthening the churches there. And around Acts chapter 16, verses 6 through 10, Paul starts to go in one direction, the Spirit stops him, starts to go in another direction, the Spirit stops him, and he has a vision of a man from Macedonia one night saying, come over here and help us. 
up in the northwestern part of this map. And they concluded that's where God is leading us. And so they go northwest up into places we recognize from our Bibles in Philippi and Thessalonica, down to Corinth, which we've heard already in this conference, over to Ephesus and down into Jerusalem. And what's happening in all these different places? Disciples are being made in new places. Churches are being planted in new places. The glory of God is being enjoyed and exalted among more people in more places. They come down to Jerusalem, then back up to Antioch. They encourage the church there. That then leads to a third journey. Paul leaves Antioch and starts retracing his step, encouraging all these different churches. But you'll notice on this map, he doesn't go anywhere new until he gets to Corinth and he decides to write a letter. And what is the letter he writes in Corinth? The letter to the church at Rome. Romans is written here at this time. Why would he write to Rome right here? Well, I'm glad you asked. Look at this map with me. So it's a little harder to see, but here's Antioch over here. Here's Corinth right there. And here's Rome. So why is he writing to Rome? He's on the way to Jerusalem. He's saying, I'm taking an offering down to Jerusalem. And then my plan is, once I get there, I'm going to come to you. Because I want to help, ask you to help me get where? To Spain. So why did Paul write Romans? Well, he tells us in Romans 15, there's no more work for me to do in these regions. That is an absurd statement. We have heard from 1 Corinthians for crying out loud. Are we to think, yeah, not a lot of work to do there. There was a ton of work to do in Corinth and these regions, but there were Christians and churches doing the work there. And over here in Spain, where Paul was trying to go, there were no Christians and no churches. There was no gospel, no word of God to do the work of God. And Paul knew Jesus had commissioned his church to go to all the nations, to all the people, groups, and places. So he kept pressing on to places where Jesus was not known why? Because the ultimate goal of God is His glory and glory enjoyed and exalted among all the peoples in all the places. And the Great Commission is not a general command to make disciples among as many people as possible where we live. The Great Commission is a specific command to make disciples among all the nations. Which then leads us to three problems. As we hear these truths from God's word in this room today, in a world where, number one, over three billion people are currently unreached by the gospel. Where about 3.2 billion people today live in Romans 15, Spain-like ignorance of the name and gospel of Jesus. Now let's be clear what we mean by this word. Unreached does not just mean lost. 
in sin apart from Christ. Unreached is not merely referring to one's status before God, it is referring to one's access to the gospel. People are just as lost in Kentucky and the places where most all of us live as they are in Yemen. The difference is there are churches in Kentucky and all the places where most of us live, gospel preaching churches, you serve in them with gospel believing Christians in our cities and communities. This is why we don't say, I don't know why we talk about unreached people around the world. I mean, there's unreached people in my office or there's unreached people in my neighborhood. Those people are not unreached. You say, how do you know? Because they're in your office. They're in your neighborhood. They have access to the gospel. You're it. It's not so in Yemen, though. There are more Christians in this room right now than in all of Yemen. And Yemen has 30 million people. There are way more Christians in this room, I should say. Which means that if you're one of those 30 million Yemenis suffering and starving right now in the middle of civil war, the likelihood is you will be born, you will live, and you will die without ever even meeting a Christian or hearing the gospel. For millions of people in Yemen, to be unreached means you are living in an earthly hell on a road that leads to an eternal hell. And unless something changes, you will never even hear how to go to heaven. I trust this map is familiar to you from the Joshua Project. We've worked with them, a radical on a project called Stratus, Stratus.Earth, to help the church see the state of the unreached, both spiritually and physically. And on this map, the green represents places reached by the gospel. By no means does that mean those are predominantly Christian places or every single individual has heard the gospel there but there is access to the gospel in these places. The yellow represents places less reached by the gospel, usually uh, for one of two reasons. Either the gospel has started to come there, but it hasn't really begun to be known widespread, so there's still not access to the gospel as much as there is in the green, or maybe some of these yellow places, there used to be a lot of gospel proclamation, but the church has weakened and there is less and less access to the gospel, but there's some. And then the red represents those most unreached by the gospel. Now you might live in a place on this map that is green or yellow, and you might think, well, we don't have a lot of Christians. And if that's the case, then just think about what that means for those in the red. Because the red is the primary place where over three billion people are being born and living and dying today with little to no access to the gospel. Three billion people just like you and me, just like your kids and my kids, 
who have all been created by God to enjoy Him in all of His glory, who are all loved by God. Three billion people whom God has created, called, and commanded us to reach. Which leads to problem number two. The church is practically ignoring the people and places most unreached by the gospel. The church, our churches, are practically ignoring the three billion people who need the gospel most. And this statement is not just anecdotal. I could show you the research, give you the numbers. I'll let just one summarize the picture. We as Christians in our country spend most of our money on ourselves, but we do give. We give collective billions of dollars to our churches, most of which we spend on making our churches more comfortable for ourselves. And then out of that money, we give to churches and ministries, we give billions of dollars to missions to gospel and church work and other places in the world, what we would call missions giving. But did you know, we've done the research, that approximately 99% of our missions giving, so not talking about all of our resources or not even all of our giving in the church, like specifically that which we're giving to missions, approximately 99% of missions giving goes to people and places in the world that already have access to the gospel. To green and yellow places on this map. In Latin America, Sub-Saharan Africa, parts of Europe. If I had time, I could also show you that these are the places we're sending most missionaries to. Now, let's be clear. Is there work to be done in those places? Absolutely there is. Is it good to come alongside brothers and sisters in those places? Without question it is. But open your eyes, brothers and sisters, in the name of missions, we are actually ignoring the Great Commission. The specific command Jesus has given us to make disciples among all the peoples of the world. We're giving to missions, patting ourselves on the back as we ignore the Great Commission. That's why Radical created an urgent initiative to get behind like good, strong, biblically faithful gospel work in the red. And we're not the only ones doing it. You're here, you see others in this conference who are doing it. Because at some point, collectively, we've got to decide to rectify this great imbalance and obey this great commission. We've got to start mobilizing billions of dollars and tens of thousands of missionaries from our churches to get the gospel to the red. Because, so follow this, this is problem number three, the number of unreached people is higher today than ever before and will continue to increase until the church 
decides to change. Did you hear that? Like, think about it. The world population is increasing, including the population among unreached people and places. The current rate of missions giving and sending is nowhere close to keeping up with those population increases, particularly among the unreached, which means, so follow this, unless we decide to change how we're approaching the Great Commission in our churches, more people than ever before in history will go to hell without ever even hearing about the King of Heaven. This is our day. This is where we're sitting right now. In this room, do we realize this? In this gospel-rich room, I was talking with Ligon lunch, and this is this is such a gospel, gloriously gospel-rich room. We have said and spoken and heard and sung and prayed the gospel hundreds of times over the last 24 hours alone. And right now we're pausing to think about billions of people who are an ever-increasing number who've never heard it once. And yes, the point is not to feel guilt that we have the gospel like this. We feel grace that we have the gospel like this. And we realize that this grace is not intended by our God to stop with us. It is intended by our God to spread through us. That this grace is not intended to center on us, but on the glory of our God among all of the nations. And so we bring it home to two conclusions and one plea. And I want to make these as personal as possible to the brothers and sisters in this room. First conclusion. If we are not living and dying to make disciples of unreached nations, then we are disobeying the Great Commission and disregarding the goal of God. And yes, I am tempted to give caveats at this point. But of course this doesn't mean everyone is called to move and work among the unreached. God sent out two people from Antioch. Paul told other people to stay in those regions to work. Not everyone in Rome was supposed to pack their bags and go to Spain. But all of them all of us, every person in whom the Spirit of God dwells has been commissioned by God to live and give and work and pray and die with zeal to see disciples made and churches multiplied and the glory of God enjoyed and exalted among all the nations. If you are not living toward this end, if you are not leading your family toward this end, raising up your kids 
toward this end. If you're not leading the church that you serve in toward this end, then you are disobeying the Great Commission and disregarding the goal of your God. And if there is any guilt there, then let us not justify ourselves in it. That's certainly not what the gospel compels. By the grace of God and the gospel, let us repent and realize conclusion number two, by God's grace, you and your church have a unique and significant part to play in seeing all the nations enjoy and exalt God. You just feel this right where you're sitting right now. You and your church have a unique and significant part to play in seeing nations, peoples come to enjoy and exalt God. Regardless of the size, location, or makeup of your church, if there are people there who have the Word of God and the Spirit of God, then you and they together have a unique part to play in the global goal of God. He has not saved you or your church to sideline you in His eternal aims. You think, well, what can I, or my family, or my church really do? Like, what kind of question is that? There are three billion people who haven't heard the gospel. There is no shortage of things to do. So start doing it. Let one of these organizations help you. Let Radical help you. Whatever, anybody. Just you and your church have a unique, significant part to play. So let's play it to his glory and the good of the nations. Which leads to one plea. And I, I don't believe this is my plea. I believe this is Jesus' plea. It's his prayer. For us who believe in him. For us who are together in the gospel. And we know, we've talked about it, it is no secret that we have walked and are walking through divisive days in the church between genuine brothers and sisters in Christ. Which, why, which is why one of the five texts we started with was Jesus' prayer for us in John 17. And just look, just look at all the that's in this prayer. Jesus prays, I do not ask, Father, for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, in me, and I in you, that they may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I've given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Could it be any clearer? Jesus longs 
Simone was on his heart as he's literally pleading before the Father for us to be one so that all the nations and tribes and peoples and languages of the world would know his glory. So I want to ask four pastors from our church to join me up here as I personally look back on 16 years of Together for the Gospel. I think of brothers in Christ who I did not know when this journey started. When I was sitting there in the Galt House at the very beginning. And over the last 16 years, by God's grace, I've come to know and love these different brothers. And I'm just going to ask each of these four pastors to represent just four of them. So, Nate, you'll be Mark Dever. Congratulations. You're Mark. Arlen, you'll be Al Moeller. Smartest person I know. Carly, you'll be John MacArthur. And then James. James, you're Thabidion Nibuile. I genuinely love and honor each of these men. Mark, I remember the first time Mark emailed me, I was like, an email from Mark Dever. It was like a one sentence email. So I wrote out like a, I spent probably four hours <laughs> constructing a long email. Ended up pressing send on two sentences. Uh, I was just so nervous. And ever since then, uh, all the way to his counsel to me in ministry after midnight last night. I thank God for you, brother. I stand in awe when I see how Al has led Southern Seminary over decades through all kinds of trials to train strong church leaders for churches here and around the world. I stand in awe when I see how John MacArthur has pastored his church across 50 years. I remember first T4G, I was sitting there and uh, I was about to be in my first pastorate like the next week and uh, he spoke on 40 years of gospel ministry and, and the fruit of that and the commentaries in my study are evident and then Thabiti is one of my favorite expositors of scripture I love listening to Thabiti walk through a text in God's word and he has been a deep encouragement and example to me in a multitude of ways. So I, I love and I honor each of these men. So I want to invite you guys to make a circle over here together by holding onto one another's hands. And in so doing, to give us a picture of the gospel together for the gospel. But this picture has never been just about them, right? This picture is about us. This picture is about different ones of us who also come from different backgrounds and have different perspectives on a variety of different things. And when we're together for the gospel in a circle like this, looking at each other, 
it can be really easy to start spending a lot of time focusing on where we are different, on things about which we disagree, and sometimes sharply so. Add on to that a cultural climate that makes us quick to accuse or question or distrust or divide from one another, and we can start to lose our hold on each other. All while three billion people around us are being born and living and dying without ever even heard the gospel. I give you a picture of what is happening right now. But we do realize, right, that there is another way to form a circle, that there is another way for these brothers to form a circle holding on to each other's hands? Don't you guys show us a different way? I submit to you today, based on John 17 and all the other texts we've looked at, that this kind of together for the gospel changes everything. When we are one, so that we might reach the nations of the world. See, when one brother's eyes are on that starving little boy and girl in Yemen, another brother's eyes are on that frightened family in Afghanistan, another brother's eyes are on that suffering village in Somalia, another brother's eyes are on that imprisoned husband and wife in North Korea, and they know none of them has even heard the name of Jesus, then things change. The grip is just as tight. I would argue it gets tighter because you're working together with urgency to get the gospel, the greatest news in the world, that you know it, and they've never even heard it, and because you know that them hearing it, based on John 17, actually depends on you holding on to each other. So I want to plead with you, with us to be together for the gospel like this, where our eyes collectively fix on the goal of our God, the spread of his glory among all the peoples of the earth. And brothers and sisters in Christ, brothers and sisters who by God's grace have the gospel, we have a choice. We can fight hell for the good of the nations, or we can fight each other while the nations go to hell. God help us to come together and stay together for the sake of those without the gospel. It's not too late to register for Secret Church happening this Friday, April 29th at 7 p.m. Eastern. Secret Church is a unique one-night event streamed online to more than 50,000 participants around the world. Encouraged by our persecuted brothers and sisters example, we meet for close to six hours for intense study of God's Word and passionate prayer for the persecuted, taught and led by David Platt. Participating in Secret Church is easy. You can stream from your church, home, office, or anywhere you have an internet connection. Visit Radical.net backslash Secret Church for more information or to register. Well, that's it for today's episode. I'm your host, Stacey Martin. For additional articles, podcasts, events, and much more, visit Radical.net or follow us on Facebook and Instagram. 